Hello and welcome to The Stack. Today on the show we have a special interview with legendary graphic designer Neville Brody. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. This month sees the long-awaited and highly anticipated publication of the third monograph on the work of the great British designer Neville Brody. The graphic language of Neville Brody, 3, showcases projects from the last 30 years in the career of a man who has been one of the most consistent and creative practitioners in graphic design and brand strategy since his era-defining work at The Face in the early 80s, then at Arena and beyond. Brody has produced an unrivaled body of work spanning editorial, typography, brand design, information graphics and more, and is rightly celebrated for both his groundbreaking multidisciplinary approach and his tireless pursuit of innovation. With a copy of the excellent new monograph in hand, hot of the presses, Brody returned to Monaco HQ once again and speak to Monaco's head of radio, Tom Edwards. Neville Brody, a warm welcome back to Monocle. You're no stranger, but it's been it's been too long, and we're delighted you've come into this, particularly on the occasion nearest damn it of the graphic language of Neville Brody. This is the third monograph, and we were just chatting before a scarcely believable hiatus between the second and the third. Tell us a little bit, Neville, just to kick things off. Why, why now? And you know, what have you been up to in the intervening <laughs> almost oh, thirty years? It's been mad. In a way, it's been 30 years since the last publication. And I was waiting till I had enough work and then actually waited too long and realized that I had far too much work. And in fact, this book is a distillation already of about 50% of what's been done in that time. So a lot of the process was curating and editing and going through everything. But to be honest, it's been, it's been a five or six year journey just getting this book on the table. And what a journey it's been. And it, I've been fortunate enough to leaf through it and enjoy it. One of the things that I find really interesting is this idea, you know, it's your work, but it's your book. If you're the designer of the work and the designer of the book, what does that mean? Because you're, I guess, known a little bit for blurring those boundaries. Even if we go right back to the early 80s, that was kind of part of what informed your style and your approach. Does that make it easier to create something like this? Or actually, can it make it, it actually, more difficult? It actually makes it a lot more difficult because... If it was someone else's work, I probably would have put everything in a framed space on the page with a border around it, treated it very delicately, treated all the captions and the text the same, one style for headlines. But approaching it as someone presenting their own work, much as an artist would do when they're doing those artist portfolios, you have a kind of freedom, which is also a kind of challenge, to re-express that work. And... That work didn't exist in printed book format before. It existed in another format as a poster or something on a screen. So what you're doing is adapting it to a book format. And as you're doing that, you're editorializing. And then that becomes something pretty scary, actually, because if you don't editorialize fully, you're not taking advantage of that opportunity. So what I had to do was rethink everything in the book and then bring another layer, which is the audience engagement, which is the drama of editorial. 
I'm fascinated by this idea of how you address that audience. And I guess it's in some ways it's easier to understand the audience's engagement with your work when it's in a book, because you imagine it in their hands and it's tactile and they're flicking through the pages as I, as I am doing here in the studio. How aware are you of the you know medium being the message, or do you have to try and stay true to your values, regardless of whether you're thinking about a phone screen or a TV screen or a 48-sheet poster or whatever it might be? Well, the thing about graphic design is the medium is the message. And graphic design is about how you present an idea. And that idea can be received in very different ways if you treat it very differently. If you change the typeface, for instance, that message has changed completely. So presenting graphic design through graphic design becomes a kind of double challenge because you're reinterpreting everything again and finding new ways to, I guess, engage with the audience and bring new dimensions and facets to that work. So when you talk about the medium as the message, graphic design is the message in so many cases. And the message itself is something that gets distorted and reinterpreted. And tell me a bit about the development of the digital realm, because it was really interesting. I was listening back before we spoke today to a chat you had with Tyler here in the studio, I think probably about 10 years ago, which is weird. Um, It feels like last century. it, It does. Well, and this is the interesting point, because weirdly, some of the conversations you guys were having about the demands of digital and how it was democratizing in some ways, but it was more fragmentary in others. And the challenge that posed across the creative industries sounds like a conversation you could have been having yesterday. Where are we at in that process, Neville? Well, when digital arrived, let's say 88, I mean, 84, probably, but 1988 was where it sort of really started to gel. I know most people in the design industry rejected it. They didn't want to use the computer. They thought the computer would just come and go. It was just a tool. And no one envisaged at that time that the means of creation also became the means of distribution and the means of receiving. So now you're creating entirely within that digital space. And at the beginning, it wasn't corporatized. There were no corporations involved. Maybe Netscape at the beginning, and then obviously Apple and Microsoft in terms of building the machinery. But... The space itself wasn't controlled. Okay, so the internet came from government and education and military purposes originally, but it wasn't to the point where you had social media. You had MySpace, for instance, or on Netscape, you could, and Mozilla, you could do your own, like, this is me, this is my mum, this is my garden. (laughs) So you could do that personalized space and that led to a certain aesthetic. But at the same time, there was an incredible freedom that I don't think we valued at that time, where we did projects like Fuse, which experimented with typographic language, where we could do very kind of off-beam, dramatic, experimental stuff in web. And now, as a process of corporations getting more and more in a controlling space, it's become far more regimented, far more like sitting in an office and just having stuff on your screen. And that intrigues me. So you're known, I guess, celebrated a little bit for your disruptive appetite for bringing a bit of a, whatever you want to call it, a bit of a punk attitude. It's a cliche. I don't know if you like it or if it irritates you. Was that part of that, that you understood this would interrupt the 
fairly narrow control that a few key players had on what the design discourse was. So was it sort of ideologically, was that one of the reasons it appealed to you? Or did you, was it just as a person manipulating these tools, you were like, I understand what this is going to give me? Well, all new technologies become moments of opportunity and challenge. I guess abstract painting and impressionism was born out of the invention of the camera. It allowed people to see life and scenes in a very, very different way. It allowed people to imagine that things could be cropped differently or that you could capture everyday living moments of working or serving in a bar or dancing. Or You could then start employing these other things that the camera could capture, which was like movement, which painting had never done before. You have my bridge and then you have the study of the horse trotting and all of these things had a huge impact, which eventually then led to cubism, because with cubism you could imagine looking at things from a different perspective. And then ultimately, the birth of the camera, combined with printing, mass printing, led to graphic design. So that came together the middle of the First World War with Dadaism, and that was that explosion from art into mass culture. So technology has always been that moment of opportunity. So... As a studio, we've always used those moments as ungoverned, un, I guess, outlaw kind of approach to what we could do because there wasn't a kind of single way to do things at that point. New technology always breaks that. Quite quickly with new technology, it becomes institutionalized and owned. But you have a window before that. With AI now, I think we're... At that same point, again, it's been, I guess, 35 years now since the last major revolution in technology. Although, I guess, the internet and information revolution came within that space. But AI is a, is a huge step again. And I know you're relatively sanguine, and this shouldn't surprise people given the remarks you've just made about its influence or otherwise. And your view is that it is a tool, everyone will engage with it. But you're relaxed, you're sanguine about the idea that I could go on to, I don't know, Doll E2 or whatever it might be and say, rustle me up a font, you know, in the style of Neville Brody, that doesn't worry you, that idea there are challenges around appropriation or copyright or the compromise of the individual's creativity. You're not bothered about that? Well, of course I'm bothered about it. Of course I'm bothered about artists spending lifetimes developing an idea that then can be easily copied and distributed without attribution or even payment back. And we've seen this happen in music mm. in the last couple of decades where musicians have to perform live in order to really support themselves. And the act of publication of music itself isn't an income stream anymore and can be so easily ripped off and copied. So this is happening anyway. And it's an inevitability. So how do we use that becomes quite a key issue. And secondly, as I said, I think we have that moment right now. No one really knows what AI is going to do. We know it's there, it's never going to go away. The question is, how do we utilise it, not are we going to utilise it? And there's a moment we've got right now, before governments and big corporations come in and control it, even though Microsoft and Google, the, because it's a, it's a question of scale, isn't it? It's big oil, but it's big intelligence. So it's already being controlled in that space. So then the challenge is, how do we personalise that? Mm. 
how do we use that as a form of expression, but in a very transparent way? It's when governments use it that we need to start worrying. That's the next challenge we face. I'm fascinated by your relationship with sort of academia and education around design. Neville and I know you spoke with Tyler before and you have had long relationships with the RCA and others. One thing that intrigues me, because we're, again, to bring it back to the book, if we go back to, was it 88, the first one? Was that right? 94, the second. Those texts, those volumes kind of became shorthand Bibles. I'm flattering you, but you'll have to just accept it for that next generation of students. Presumably that was the point of the endeavour to a degree. What's that moment like when you see those ideas you've outlined, your creative processes as well that you've shared, starting to inform how students are expressing themselves and how then when they go into the world of work, they're doing consequential work. What's that like? It's something I have to try and ignore, to be honest. Really? Yeah, in a way, because you, if you sign up to that, you get lost in that. And reality is, if someone starts copying the stylistic attributes of what I've done, then the work has kind of failed in a way because it was never about the stylistic attributes, the characteristics. It was all, all about the why something was being done. And the work was always, and the books were always intended as a kind of shop window to the ideas behind it. So it was all about this need for perpetual challenge, self-challenge, challenge of our cultures, in order to keep our cultures alive and moving and evolving and to make sure that our existence in this society was still burning and not hypnotized. So the first two books really were shop windows to thinking. This third book is, is the same in a way. Okay. Is it, can we say it's a celebration of Neville Brody's work? Well, you can. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to do it and I won't let you stop me. Um, tell me a bit about sort of anti-design, because I think one of the, you've alluded to it already there about this idea of avoiding stasis or homogeneity, this idea of constantly challenging. I think I've, I've heard you say it's about keeping us out of the cultural deep freeze or deep freezer. How's that going? Maybe through a UK lens first of all. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a perpetual process and it requires vigilance. And you talked about education. Education is all about the transformation of the mind, actually. And these days, in terms of knowledge, our students probably know more than us as academics. They're more embedded in what's happening. They can seek and source information much quicker. What they don't have necessarily is the overview, the big picture, mm. and thinking about what can catalyze change and what is relevant. So I think the job of an academic really is, is to support the student, not to lead or teach anymore. So how does the academic then become the prompt for something that they will be superseded by, which is quite an interesting... Well, it's counterintuitive, isn't it, to try and train or assist people to render you whatever you might call it, superfluous or, or obsolete. But it is important. Does that happen with enough consistency in the UK no, system? as I said, it's a vigilant position. It requires constant attention. Education needs to be responding constantly and not be a fixed form because society is changing. So what is relevant is changing. And the anti-design festival that we did, this is now 13 years ago, and it wasn't ever about being anti-design. It was about opposing or revealing the commercial interests behind why some art 
gets supported and culture gets supported and other art and culture wasn't supported. So the Anti-Design Festival was mainly about culture in our society and saying that we need to allow failure to happen. We need to be supporting work and art and culture that might not bring in the numbers. So there's a shift from what we call the age of success, which was the 30 years that started under Thatcher, deregulation, consumerism. There'd been 30 years of that up until that point, and it was saying we need to move beyond a number-driven society and really think about the cultures that are important to us. And in terms of support then for our creative industries, and again, I don't want to only look at this through a UK lens, but we're sat in London and this is where, we, where, where we're at. It feels like it's maybe got worse in terms of not just direct government support, but it's fundamental understanding or misunderstanding of what the creative industries is, how it works, what it delivers. Is that too gloomy or is that, would you sort of go along uh, with that miserable reading? Let's, let's not think about the gloom, but let's think about what needs to happen. And it's very clear that what needs to happen is that creative approaches to education need to start earlier in the process that creative arts need to be supported and surfaced and forefronted for children as well as teenagers, that creative education needs to be affordable. At the moment, it's incredibly prohibitive. If you are struggling to pay bills, the last thing you're going to think about is going to higher education or even education itself. So there's some really fundamental challenges going on that will reveal themselves in future generations. So how do we reverse that? How do we take a positive front foot in that space? And we are governed frequently these days by governments that don't understand the importance of creativity and, and culture. And I'm sure you've seen this yourself, Tom. It's, it's kind of the shift back towards kind of Victorian ethos. It's STEM. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, that's been an explicit endeavour, an enterprise set, particularly by the current Conservative, the inexplicably <laughs> long, long-standing Conservative administration. Now, but one thing that I find interesting, I don't know if this is just a semantic point or a linguistic thing, you often talk about the people with whom you work closely, not as collaborators or colleagues, but you often talk about your co-conspirators. And I found that interesting, and I, I was going to ask you about it. What does it mean to conspire with Neville Brodie? Does it come back a little bit to this slightly, I don't know what you'd call it, antagonistic, disruptive attitude a little oh. bit. You're, you're, you're frowning, I'll, I'll tell our listeners. Do, do you not like that? I never think of myself as being antagonistic. He said antagonistic. <laughs> exactly, he said antagonising, Tom. No, I don't see myself as an, an, an antagonist. Um, a disruptor, uh, perhaps? Is that better? I think, I think a conscious practitioner. And I think that we all have to be conscious about the impact our work has on society. And none more so than graphic designers who tend to, to hide behind a process of messaging and manipulation and not really take responsibility for the impact that work is going to have on the way people think and behave. So it's about trying to be constantly aware of that and responsible for that. So it's not conspiring in the political sense at all. It's conspiring in the sense of treating the reader or the viewer or the user as an equal human being who may disagree or may take away different conclusions from the work you've done, but that that is part of the process. Whereas most advertising is built around the idea that it's a monologue, not a dialogue. So the conspiracy 
is to constantly keep trying to break down that model. It still makes you an outlier, whether you like it or not, because there just aren't that many people who bring that principle, I think, to bear. Well, on better their... an outlier than an outlaw. I exactly. Think. Well, a bit of both maybe is a happy medium. Um, let's talk about some some specific work now. I don't want to be too sort of reductive with this and say, oh, you know, break down a successful project to the nuts and bolts. But I do think there's something interesting about the mechanics of, of doing that. And if we think of something like, I don't know, what's a high profile Coca-Cola, let's say, give us a bit the sort of the, the genesis and how that works. I think people are interested in, we get, oh, there was a brief and then here's what we have at the end. And now we see it everywhere. But what actually happens? So the thing about working with Coca-Cola was that we started by being invited to do a lecture as part of a series of creative interventions in the headquarters in Atlanta. And as part of that presentation, I showed a lot of the typographic work that we'd done. And James, who was head of global design at that point, said, I didn't realize you did all of this. Would you like to consider getting involved in our, our global universal typeface? And we said, Nah, yeah, but that was it. <laughs> we said yes. Go on, please. Yeah, um, and the process was quite fascinating because we had to create something that embedded something that you could call a Coca-Cola personality into something that was entirely scalable across different platforms, from screen to print to physical spaces, an incredibly dramatic range of sizes. You know, from a can to a billboard and somehow capture what Coca-Cola had never managed before, which is to capture the essence of Coca-Cola. So we had the luxury of spending three days in their archive, looking through hundreds and thousands of pieces of work, and then looking and capturing some of the characteristics across a hundred odd years of communication, isolating which ones of those we felt were relevant, building them in as part of a DNA to the system, and then making it work seamlessly. So now when you see the word magic as part of the Coca-Cola advertising, that word probably has more of that DNA than any other word. It's like the, the circular dot on the eye is part of their core language of the, of the circle. There's a little tail to the A, and it's a double-stacked A. So there's all of these things that feel somehow legacy, yet somehow modern. And yeah, that's a process that took a, a year or two. It's amazing. And when you're doing those, I guess what everyone now would say, oh, building a mood board or whatever, what are you are you sketching? Are you taking pictures? Are you physically taking pieces of paper? I'm just so I'm so intrigued by what physically we're photographing the archive and then we're creating mood boards out of that, isolating and it's a proper piece of research. Research mm -hmm. is a core part of what we do. And we tend to do research first and then that research also looks at what a client is trying to do or what is the intention of the piece. Out of that, we build a strategy. So how do we start putting all of this together? And then from that, we start exploring systems. How can this all be structured in a way that can be used on a day-to-day -day basis? And then what is it made of? So the component bit mm. is where we're increasingly involved. It's a typeface or a set of icons or a particular way to art direct a picture. And then we do a few pieces of work that express that. How, how can that look coming together? And then we help the, the client or the partner or whoever work in a space of implementation. How are they going to use this on a day-to-day basis? So graphic design used to be almost 100% at that level of expression. 
But given digital media and the way apps and web and always on activation works these days, that center of gravity has moved back a bit towards system building and component creation. So it's not so much about wild street posters. It's about clean but personality-driven typefaces or icons. Do you have a favorite type of work or project? And I guess we can go right back again to, you know, we could go back to the early 80s and the face or talk about arena or whatever it might be. I know you, obviously you, we all love magazines and there's something I still think uniquely appealing about those products. Do you have favorite or do you have to have the discipline not to have favorite products, well, projects? I think you've touched upon it and I think we just touched upon it. My favorite project is the one where we create a system and then we use it expressively. A magazine, as you know, Monocle, it's a systematic, engineered piece of DNA. And within that, you have to push it as dramatically as you can and scale it between what is appropriate. So this is just information. We need to keep this really clean. Here we need to move the reader. So how do we think about what, what is the selection of image that goes here? And within all of that, copywriting becomes quite key. You know, what is the right headline? So it's word and image. and Yes, I love magazine working. It's that amazing balance between word and image where the image is a partner to the word. In social media these days, the word is a supporter to the image, whereas historically the image was a supporter to the word. So that's a huge shift that's happened. But it's that thing we talked about, and it's mentioned in the book a bit, it's, it's thinking about these things in terms of, of jazz. It's, mm. You have a scale, you have your instrument, you have a structure. And then within that, you have improvisation and expression. So in a way, probably my favorite piece of work was actually putting this book together. Well, you bring us back to where we started. Let me ask you about that, because that's, that's interesting about, you mentioned jazz, and I know you've talked before about your love of, yeah, this idea of styles and approaches that kind of overlap one another, cut-up style, whether that's the, uh, you know, William Burroughs writing, or yeah, or is it freeform jazz? How, how do, if you read a book like that, or you hear one of these records, maybe a favorite, maybe a new one, what's the, that's kind of an impossible question, but what, what, what is that doing creatively inside Neville's brain that then you try and manifest in a, in a, in a project? Um, jazz musicians, they have both of those parts of the brain working, left and right. You have the left brain, which is about language and structure and the engineering and what can and can't you do. And, and then the right, side of the brain, which is looking for, well, how can I shift that a bit? How can I push that? How can I, where are the spaces for, for discovery and experimentation? And so I think true graphic design is about melding those two things together. The remarkable Neville Brody talking to Tom Edwards about the graphic language of Neville Brody 3, which is published by Thames and Hudson on the 25th of May. That's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor, Jack Jewers. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, fernando, at fpmonaco.com. We're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, please subscribe to The Stack on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or on monaco.com. Before we go, a little song for you. Cabaret Voltaire with Sensoria. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Watch you in a lonesome play by heading for